As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. This is Bloomberg Surveillance alongside Damian Sassauer and Gina Martin-Adams. I am Matt Miller. Tom, John, and Lisa are on assignment today in Jackson Hole, ahead of our special coverage. Let's uh, get out to Jackson Hole right now. Bloomberg's Mike McKee kicks off our coverage with former St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard, now at Purdue. Mike, take it away. Well, good morning, everybody, and good morning to Jim Bullard. You know, it's a tradition here at Jackson Hole that we start our coverage with an an interview with Jim Bullard. Every uh, every year we come out at 6 a.m. in the morning and uh, Jim joins us in the cold. Uh, Jim left the Fed, but we're not letting him get away. He's joining us now from <laughs> Purdue University, where he is the dean of the Daniels School of Business. Welcome uh, back to our show, Jim, even if you're not here in person. Well, I'm glad to be here. And uh, I wore my uh, Jackson Hole coat uh, in solidarity with the cold weather that you have to endure uh, every year uh, when you're out in the mountains there. Well, I offered you coffee. I just want everybody to know that, but you, you didn't want to come get some. Uh, the first question, and I, I'm not the only person to wonder this, and I'm sure you know this, is uh, why you left the Fed when you did and why you took this job that you have now? Uh, well, this is a great challenge uh, for me and and uh, for the Mitch Daniels uh, School of Business. Uh, we're going to get uh, uh, much better. We're already good, but we're going to go to great. And uh, I thought it'd be a great opportunity. I have been in the Fed for uh 15 years as president and longer before that. Uh, so my time was running out. Uh, so this is a great ch challenge uh, later in my career. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, you recently moved. So you still, I'm sure, have a lot of economics and monetary policy on your brain. Let me pick it a little bit and ask you what you think of the economy at the moment. If you were still uh, trying to decide whether you would vote one way or another, are we getting signals that give you a strong view one way or another? I think the biggest question right now is the reacceleration in the U.S. economy. Uh, Atlanta Fed's GDP now showing substantially above uh, trend growth for the U.S. economy in the third quarter. Uh, that's following uh, higher than expected growth in the first half of 2023 and for that matter in the second half of 2022. 
So I think that those that have been predicting imminent recession are uh, have are having a lot of trouble here. Uh, it doesn't seem to be happening, and it, this uh, reacceleration could put upward pressure on inflation, stem the disinflation that we're seeing, and uh, instead uh, delay plans for the Fed to uh, uh, change policy. How are we going to know? Let me separate those questions out a little bit in terms of uh, inflation. Absent the growth level that we have at the moment, and of course that's just a, an, a very early read from the Atlanta Fed, absent that, would you be thinking that inflation would reaccelerate uh, anyway, based on what you've seen in the economy? Uh, there's some talk about uh, base effects fading and going the other way during the second half of the year. So we'll see if that uh, occurs. Um, you know, I like to look at the 12-month uh, numbers because they rinse out some of the seasonal effects and um, so you could get uh, at least a, a pause in the disinflation or even a, a little bit of reacceleration. I think that would uh, suggest a higher rate profile for the Fed than otherwise. So, um, so yeah, it could happen. Well, Chairman Powell and the other members of the committee have been very careful in what they've said about additional rate increases because they seem to feel they're, they're pretty tight right now and they want to make sure they don't tip the economy into recession. How great a danger do you think that is? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think the committee should take a little bit of a victory lap here. I mean, the uh, unemployment rate is three and a half percent and we were very aggressive in 2022 and into 2023. Uh, but uh, the real side of the economy has been growing faster than potential. Uh, labor market is still very strong. That should support consumption, uh, which should continue to uh, uh, proceed apace here in the second half of 2023. So, and, and in the meantime, CPI inflation, headline CPI inflation was actually on a 12-month basis was 9% at one point, now 3%. Um, and the core measures are coming down as well. So uh, it really looks like the, the 2022 policy, including 75 basis point hikes, four meetings in a row, is is uh, has a good chance of success. Uh, you never know, but uh, but it seems like it has a good chance of success here. So if there was ever a soft landing, uh, taking six percentage points off the headline inflation rate without an increase in unemployment would sound like a soft landing to me. Well, the argument some of your uh, former colleagues make about not raising rates further is that we have long and variable lags that are just beginning to hit the economy. That 2022 uh, rate increase path is only just beginning to hit the economy. And we have seen some of the uh, sentiment indicators suggest that. Uh, we have seen manufacturing drop off. Uh, do you think that we really need more rate uh, increases or uh, should we wait and see if these lags are finally starting to hit and uh, this speedy economy will slow down at last? Yeah, I, I don't think that the uh, long and variable lags are quite what they were when Milton Friedman first talked about them uh, decades ago. I think uh, a lot of the transmission is much faster than it was at that time. Uh, I would point to housing as one of the prime examples. Uh, the housing market basically came to a stop in the spring of 2022. And at that point, the committee hadn't actually done anything uh, the policy rate was still not very far from zero at that point, but the markets anticipate 
uh, what the Fed is going to do. And so you got a big impact uh, in the spring and summer and fall of 2022 on the housing market. So that's an example of how markets pull forward the policy of the Fed. And I think uh, that's more prevalent today than it would have been in the 60s or the 70s. So I think these long and variable lag estimates are a little out of date. Uh, you have to think about uh, transmission coming much faster than it would have uh, during that period of time. A couple of newspaper stories, and now all Wall Street is talking about is our star and whether the Fed is going to be uh, adjusting its estimates. Uh, two questions. One, uh, what do you think it is and does it tell you anything? And the second question is, is it really relevant to policy at this point? I, th I think it is relevant, uh, but we don't have very good estimates of, of this number. Um, I think Chair Powell has said we really don't know. I think that was the one quote from him on, on the R-Star. So it is an interesting debate, but you probably can't make too much of it uh, because uh, uh, the estimates are so uncertain. Um, I do think it matters, though, because people want to have some idea of where they think they're going um, in the medium term. Well, that's my next question is, where do you think we're going in the medium term? You've got some people who think, uh, John Williams, a New York Fed president, that our star, uh, the neutral rate of interest, let's put it that way, is uh, going to be somewhere where it was prior to the pandemic. Others think we've moved into a new regime, to quote the old St. Louis Fed president, Jim Bullard, and uh, we're going <laughs> to be back to, say, the 1990s versions of interest rates and growth rates uh, and inflation rates. Where do you think we come out of this pandemic? Yeah, I think uh, the, the probabilities are that we are in a new regime that'll be a higher interest rate regime. It'll be more like the 90s uh, than we're used to. Uh, in the last two decades. And uh, the reason I say that is that I, inflation is above target today. Core inflation is likely to be sticky and come down rather slowly. Uh, and the rule of thumb would be that the policy rate has to be above the inflation rate in order to continue to push inflation back toward our 2% target. So you would expect from those considerations that interest rates would be you know, rather high uh, over this time frame going forward over the medium term, uh, more like the 90s, less like the 2009 uh, to 2019 period where you had inflation below target and uh, interest rates pinned down at low levels. So I think uh, I think we have probably switched here to a higher interest rate regime. Um, with higher nominal interest rates. Now, I would say about the 90s, you and I have talked about this before, uh, the second half of the 90s was actually one of the best periods for U.S. macroeconomic performance. So, uh, you know, maybe it's a good sign for the economy. The economy can boom uh, even with a higher nominal interest rate environment. Well, we'll hope you're correct. Jim Bullard, the Dean of the Business School at Purdue University, the Daniels Business School. Thank you for joining us and helping us kick off once again our Jackson Hole coverage. Matt? Michael McKee, thanks very much for that. And thanks also to former St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, 
to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We're in for Tom, John, and Lisa. They're out doing some reporting at Jackson Hole as well. And there could be some really big market-moving speeches uh, out of this symposium, or maybe not. Let's ask Michael Darda, chief economist and macro strategist at Roth MKM Partners. Michael, you know, what do you expect from the Fed um, in a week when a lot of people have been saying NVIDIA is maybe more important than Jay Powell's speech? Thanks for having me on, Matt. Well, that's clearly been the case in terms of the equity market, as we've seen. Uh, all eyes are going to be on Powell tomorrow at 10 a.m. Uh, you know, last year it was very short, very blunt, very to the point. But the Fed has certainly moved quite a bit, um, you know, over the course of the last year and a half. So I don't think Powell's intent here is going to be to make new news, I think, you know, essentially the Fed is getting close to where it thinks the, the policy rate is above neutral, uh, but their eyes are on the macro data. And you just heard Bullard there uh, essentially saying if the data looks like it's above trend, the Fed's going to believe that the job is not quite finished. So I really don't think Powell is going to come out and make some kind of declaration that the Fed is is done tightening. I, I think they're going to take it meeting by meeting, which is you know what they've been saying. Michael, rising real yields are a negative for risk assets. Here we have the U.S. 10-year real yield approaching 10%. It's jumped something on the order of 50 bips since July. Just how much higher can real yields go from here? Yeah, that's a really important point. Um, they could certainly go higher with tighter Fed policy. Real rates can go up. Uh, but you know, consider the fact that the last period in which we had 10-year real yields around 200 basis points spanning from 2003 to 2009, the forward P.E. ratio on the S&P 500 was right around 15. And we're back above 19 times now. We were at you know, 20 times forward estimates uh, earlier this year before a pullback started. So I think that ultimately is going to be a hurdle for the equity market. There is competition now uh, from the bond market, and there's a lot of competition from cash. You know, We published a piece yesterday that took a look at the treasury bill yield relative to the earnings yield on stocks, and, and T-bill yields are now higher than the earnings yield on the S&P 500. That's actually fairly rare historically. And when it ha has occurred, uh, the equity market is, is tended to, to fall into fairly serious corrections or bear markets. It's gonna be impossible to time, uh, but the point is a good one. The higher the yield, the lower the PE ratio. And we have pretty elevated PE ratios now in the equity market, even on a, on a forward-looking basis. But this is great for 
you know, Tom Keene is in a triple leveraged all cash yeah, fund, yeah. right? So he's been doing very well. This is when Gina Michael's going to talk about the equity risk premium or the negative yeah, yeah. equity risk premium, which, uh, you know, it's difficult for me to get my head around that. Right. Well, I so the thing I think you want to focus on with respect to the equity risk premium is most analysts are going to look at the P.E. on the S&P 500 and compare that to some version of a yield or a cash yield, as Michael does in some of his notes. And I think that the the missing link there is when you look at the P.E. of the S&P 500, you're really looking at a distorted P.E. based upon seven stocks. When you look at the rest of the broader equity markets, you look at global stocks, you look at small cap stocks, you look at the X7 S&P 500, you actually find the risk premium is much closer to long-term average. But you do have these distortions, which are creating this really bizarre environment for investment. I mean, my question to Mike would Michael would be, where are we going to go with this, Michael? Are we going to see uh, some rotation then as a default of the equity risk premium? Or is this just a sell all stocks because you're selling the top seven? Yeah, that's a really important point and a great question. I think, you know, the answer is it really depends on how the business cycle fares from here. So we have been seeing the rally broaden out and we're hearing the word soft landing and even Goldilocks now. Um you know, fairly, fairly frequently. And so it looks like a soft landing in the sense that the economy has slowed to about trend, inflation is coming down, and that's starting to catalyze a lot of confidence that will avoid a recession. And there's no recession happening now. We know there's a recession on if the unemployment rate is lifting, and that has not occurred yet. Uh, but I don't think we're quite out of the woods in terms of you know, looking out over the next year. I still think the probability of a recession is quite high just because we dodged one in the first half of the year. Q3 looks like it's shaping up pretty well so far. I think it's a bit premature to say, OK, the coast is, is clear now. So if we do end up with a recession hitting sometime between now and, say, the end of next summer, you know, I think that's going to be a difficult environment for the equity market, even you know, even given the fact that we've had these distortions by the, the seven stocks you mentioned, the rest of the market certainly doesn't look that expensive. But an environment where top line growth is weakening and potentially even falling and you have that that pressure on profit margins, I think we're going to have difficulty in risk assets and not just equity markets. I mean, the high yield market looks insanely expensive here. So I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. The triple levered cash fund, Matt, that, uh, that Tom <laughs> is a pretty good way to go here. He's done, he's done very well, but he's avoided Bitcoin uh, from, I have to say, from like $600 when I first talked to him about it. He could have made a killing in it. Uh, I want to ask about getting back to Jackson Hole, um, how restrictive the Fed is, because you point out that we have obviously an inverted yield curve. We're seeing a shrinkage in money supply for the first time in who knows how long, and that typically um, indicates a recession is coming, both of those things. On the other hand, you know, Neil Dutta, um, after the no, after the minutes, put out a note um, pointing out something that Damien was bringing up earlier as well, which is that we have unemployment at three and a half percent. We have growth that looks like four percent right now. So how restrictive can the Fed really be? Yeah, I think that's the, the critical question for the Fed. If they're looking at, you know, the, the coincident data month by month, week by week, if the data looks like it's coming in above trend, the Fed is going to assume that whatever the policy rate is, it's not high enough, right? So that's why there's still 
a question about whether they raise rates again and, and whether they're really done and the futures markets have been, you know, starting to price in at least one more rate hike, although it's, you know, low probability. Uh, so if you continue to get hot data, then the Fed is just going to keep at it because they don't, you know, they will admit they don't really know where the so-called called R star, the equilibrium interest mm. rate. If you think about what they've, most of them have been saying, the FOMC voters, since last year, they're right. talking about getting to a restrictive stance and holding there. And if you ask them to define, what, you know, what does that mean? It means that activity is coming in below trend. So if that's yep. not happening, the Fed's going to keep at it until it does happen. And you know, in my mind, that's actually the risk to the to the business cycle. And you know, that that reinforces the message of the yield curve and money and some of these longer leading indicators that tend to weaken well before recessions hit. The problem is, you know, there are long and varied lags. Yep. And so it's impossible to time. And you can have these rip roaring equity market rallies, even if they're narrowly driven, yeah. uh, lead in an economic cycle. We saw that in 06, 07. We also yep. saw that in 89, 90. So, uh, that one was before most of our time here on the uh, panel. You know, uh, it didn't uh, absolutely. For all of us here, definitely way before our times. Michael, thanks so much. Michael Darda there of Roth uh, MKM talking to us about rates. Let's bring in Max Kettner right now, chief multi-asset strategist over at HSBC. He joins us live out of Copenhagen. Max, uh, let me first get your take on the big news of the day, which is yesterday's NVIDIA earnings report. I thought expectations were so high it would be tough to beat, and yet they did it. Yeah, uh, good morning. I think, look, um, just like we've heard before, right, there's really nothing bad about that report. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be pretty interesting how the stock uh, opens. I guess we're going to go towards a new all-time high. Um, I guess in terms of the market sentiment, it's a complete switch from what we've seen uh, last week. However, I would also say in terms of the broader market sentiment, not just NVIDIA, not just AI, but if we look at the broader market sentiment, that's clearly become a little bit more bearish over the last, you know, the last two weeks or so. When we look, for example, at survey-based sentiment, look at the AAII survey, look at several other indicators. In general, they've become a little bit more bearish, and that is good news, right? That means that you know, if you get a bit further, further dips in in U.S. equities, that definitely is really territory to to buy on dips. Max, you've been pretty constructive in talking about buying on dips now for a bit of time. Is it more than just sentiment? Talk us through your theory or, or sort of your justification for getting a little bit more bullish as we approach the end of the year, because it seems to stand out as many people have sort of gotten a little scared off by what we've experienced over the last month. Yeah, I do think, look, I do think there could be a few further dips now in the next week or two, right? Or with Jackson Hole, or you guys just mentioned uh, Treasury Supply, right? If, if one or two of these auctions tail a little bit, yeah, fine. That may be bringing a few further dips, but those dips have to be bought, right? It is, number one, the sentiment side of things that uh, we've just talked about, but it's also the fundamental side, right? Like you, you before mentioned the broad-based earnings recovery. Let's remember that we just had the second quarter in a row where average earnings surprise factors have picked up again, where the earnings beat rate has picked up again, both way above uh, 10-year averages and pre-COVID averages. So that's pretty good, right? And it's also really when we look at 
the the strength of the U.S. economy overall, that is pretty broad based as well, right? Whether it's the consumer, whether it's you know easier financial conditions compared to a year ago, and indeed, if we look at some of the leading indicators of the manufacturing industry, right? Some of those leading indicators, let's say like regional Fed surveys, even the ones that we've got for August already, they're pointing towards perhaps some turning points, some early sort of turning points, even in the struggling manufacturing industry in the next couple of months. Max, uh, fundamentals don't matter anymore. Come on, you know that. I mean, let's shift back to sentiment. Let's shift back to positioning. Let's focus on seasonals, the notoriously weak September, October period. I mean, should we be even remotely thinking about buying the dip into that? Or should we be looking to hedge up? Should we be looking to cover our, you know, cover our bets? I mean, look, one of the features of this weakness we've witnessed over the better part of the last few weeks has been a stronger dollar. And, you know, my concern is that, you know, what does that mean for U.S. equity earnings? So on the second question, on the stronger dollar, but let's remember that the dollar is still significantly weaker compared to a year ago. So the fact is that when we look at the year over year change of the dollar, that's typically quite well correlated with earnings revisions of the S&P. The S&P still has a surprisingly significant uh, degree of foreign revenue exposure. So that weaker dollar compared to a year ago actually is now coming through now in Q3 earnings and Q4 earnings. So that helps. That's number one. Number two on the seasonals, I absolutely hate, I detest seasonality, right? <laughs> but we look at seasonality, to be to be perfectly honest, if you do any kinds of studies over the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years, if you adjust them for the big events, right? Things like, you know, 9-11, if you think about uh, 2008, right? Lehman Brothers. So those sorts of things that frankly did, didn't really have an awful lot of, to do with seasonality. Then even in the last 20 years, seasonality has gone right so the seasonality gains that people were able to harvest they really stopped with the with the surge in computing power which i guess brings us back to nvidia but it, it really really stopped really from the end of the 90s beginning of 2000 since then seasonality hasn't really worked right and, and also this year let's remember right you would have thought oh let's sell in may and what happened was that the rally took off in june and july so even this year seasonality didn't really work Max, great talking to you this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Max Kettner of HSBC. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
Diana Amoa, CIO of Long Bias Strategies at Kirkuswald Asset Management, joins us now to talk about uh, everything that's going on in these markets. So, Diana, really appreciate you coming into the Bloomberg Surveillance Studios um, this morning. What's your view uh, of what we see going on here with, um, you know, a couple days ago, we were at 434 on the 10-year, and uh, it didn't didn't seem to dissuade everybody um, from still keeping these equity markets at relatively high levels. So I think what's been supporting equities, despite the higher rates that we're seeing, is actually the earnings. Um, I think this last earnings season especially surprised. We've seen significant revisions in some of the key sectors that are big components of the indices, such as in the tech sector, that is actually giving investors a degree of comfort that companies can still generate profits even with higher funding costs. And you are seeing across the world some central banks start to pivot toward a more dovish policy already. Can you talk about the implications of that and how you see that playing out over the next six to 12 months? Indeed. So what we're seeing right now is some of the specific inflationary trends that we've been seeing into last year have turned into strong disinflation. And I think markets underappreciate just how synchronized the disinflation we're seeing globally is. Similarly to when we started seeing inflation pick up, and the developed markets were ignoring the signs, thinking it was EM-specific or transitory, I think the extent to which we get global disinflation might catch markets by surprise. So that's the one thing that has been um, a big turn, and especially in the context of growth outside the U.S. is actually looking quite lackluster. We've seen the PMIs out of Europe. We've seen the data out of China. We've seen data out of specific emerging market economies, whether you're looking at things like retail sales in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, credit growth across a number of key economies. Um, All of these are pointing to tighter financial conditions starting to hit growth. Uh And inflation is actually off the highs, and we're seeing this inflation, which means central bankers can start to cut rates. And indeed, over the last few months, we've seen Brazil cutting rates, Chile cutting rates. Uh, We expect we might see Poland next as one of the major emerging markets to start easing rates as well. So are we moving into a world then, as you correctly identified, where emerging markets led developed markets on the inflation front? Are emerging markets likely to lead developed markets on the central banking front through the disinflationary phase? And then how do you structure a portfolio in an environment where emerging markets are potentially leading developed markets? That seems a very different sort of investment construct than that which we've lived in for much of the last 20 years. It is indeed. And I keep saying this over and over. For the first time, you know, the inflation dynamics in EA that we've experienced over the last few decades are actually coming in as an advantage to policymakers in EM who are early to hike Mm -hmm. and they hiked aggressively. So they got to their terminal rates much faster and have been on hold for long enough. So keeping monetary conditions tight enough that inflation is responding, consumption is actually slowing down across a number of economies. In that context, Portfolio construction would argue that if there is a chance that we might have recession in some of the key economies, you need to have some duration in your portfolio. And I know given the context of the price action we saw in August, Mm -hmm. duration seems to be going in and out of fashion. But ultimately, we think real rates are high in a number of key EM economies and policymakers will be responding by cutting rates irrespective of what's playing out in the rest of the world. And that gives us comfort in seeing EM as a good diversifier of portfolios at this point in the cycle. Diana, back in June, you participated in the buy side panel of our emerging markets uh, investment conference here uh, at 731 Lex at Bloomberg headquarters. And, you know, one of the things we debated was this shift into a multipolar world where, you know, countries have to take a position 
are they on the side of the U.S.? Are they on the side of China? Now we see China trying to expand its kind of BRICS plus model. We see the U.S. making forays to South Korea and Japan. Talk to us a little bit about those countries that don't have to pick a side. Do you believe those countries should command a premium on the part of investors? So it's interesting that you bring that up in the context of we have the BRICS summit taking place right now. We had China announcing um, overnight that they're going to set up a 10 billion fund to support development in certain parts of emerging markets um, and to help with the supply chain integrity. I think that's a theme that's here to stay. It's a longer term theme. We're seeing countries across the board really thinking about where the supply chains are, where the key mineral resources are, and how to secure those. And so as a result of that, you've seen nearshoring, friendshoring become much more of a conversation going forward. You've seen countries moving more to ally themselves with non-traditional allies, and you've seen other players, such as the likes of India, Mexico, become quite strategically important to the likes of China, um, as far as um, India goes, to Mexico, to the US, as far as you know, their manufacturing hubs and, and how they're setting up their supply chains. So the nearshoring is, and, and this multipolarity is happening in place. I think investors will actually think about diversifying their portfolios from being too exposed to either China or the US in the context of if you do have a geopolitical fragmentation. And so you start to look at the more neutral countries, India being one um, that has benefited from this geopolitical uh, splintering and actually looks set to continue to grow quite rapidly, particularly in manufacturing over the next five years. So those countries should command a premium um, as this trend continues to go forward. You mentioned China. And you know, that's so critical. From the part, uh, pr from the perspective of a foreign investor, you know, we've seen roughly $11 billion exit the Chinese equity market in the last two and a half weeks alone. In the second quarter, we saw foreign direct investment in China, you know, down to its lowest levels, pretty much on record. As a offshore foreign investor, as a US dollar-based investor, how do you approach China in the current environment? One needs to understand the policy direction of China. Um, I think what makes it difficult to do direct investment in China is just the uncertainty as far as regulations go, the geopolitical uncertainty, and the, the tensions domestically. So this is an economy that looks like it's um, decelerating and continuing to decelerate. Uh, you have sporadic bouts of unrest um, coming through. And then you have flare-ups in key sectors of the economy, whether we are talking about the financial sector with the shadow banking um, issues we've seen this last couple of weeks yeah. um, in the commercial real estate space, which is key for uh, business and in even domestic real estate markets, which are key for the wealth effect for the consumer. So from an equity perspective, it becomes quite difficult to look at the traditional sectors. It's not to say there aren't interesting stories bubbling underneath the surface, whether you look at tech and the leaps that China is making there on technology, etc. But from an aggregate portfolio perspective, direct investments become hard. So the second layer, then you have to think about who benefits outside China, which countries are likely to benefit. Mm -hmm. If we do end up getting the old style stimulus of let's just build a bunch of roads, buildings, let's stimulate the property sector, commodity exporters will benefit. So think about EM commodity exporters. Um, China has now said they're reopening group tourism um, to Europe and the US. Um, they'd already started that movement in Thailand and we see that in the recovery in tourism in Thailand. So that's another proxy of thinking, you know, if we are going to get more travel, then those are places that could benefit. So there are ways to position for the China story without necessarily direct investment in China.
Diana, thanks so much for coming in. Really great to get your perspective, um, especially there on uh, emerging markets. Diana Amoa of Kirkuswald Asset Management. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.